Section 10 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexander Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section 10. The Borgias. Chapter 5. Part 2. This letter was a cause of great joy to the Holy Father. The aid of four or five thousand Turks would be insufficient under the present circumstances, and would only serve to compromise the head of Christendom, while the sum of three hundred thousand ducats, that is, nearly a million francs, was good to get in any sort of circumstances. It is true that, so long as de Gem lived, Alexander was drawing an income of 180,000 livres, which as a life annuity represented a capital of nearly two millions. But when one needs ready money, one ought to be able to make a sacrifice in the way of discount. All the same, Alexander formed no definite plan, resolved on acting as circumstances should indicate but it was a more pressing business to decide how he should behave to the king of france he had never anticipated the success of the french in italy and we have seen that he laid all the foundations of his family's future grandeur upon his alliance with the house of aragon but here was this house tottering and a volcano more terrible than her own vesuvius was threatening to swallow up naples he must therefore change his policy and attach himself to the victor no easy matter, for Charles the Eighth was bitterly annoyed with the Pope for having refused him the investiture and given it to Aragon. In consequence, he sent Cardinal Francesco Piccolomini as an envoy to the king. This choice looked like a mistake at first, seeing that the ambassador was a nephew of Pius the Second, who had vigorously opposed the House of Anjou. But Alexander, in acting thus, had a second design, which could not be discerned by those around him. In fact, he had divined that Charles would not be quick to receive his envoy, and that, in the parleyings to which his unwillingness must give rise, Piccolomini would necessarily be brought into contact with the young king's advisers. Now, besides his ostensible mission to the king, Piccolomini had also secret instructions for the more influential among his counsellors. These were Briconnet and Philippe de Luxembourg, and Piccolomini was authorized to promise a cardinal's hat to each of them. The result was just what Alexander had foreseen. His envoy could not gain admission to Charles and was obliged to confer with the people about him. This was what the Pope wished. Piccolomini returned to Rome with the king's refusal, but with a promise from Briconnet and Philippe de Luxembourg that they would use all their influence with Charles in favor of the Holy Father and prepare him to receive a fresh embassy. But the French all this time were advancing and never stopped more than forty-eight hours in any town, so that it became more and more urgent to get something settled with Charles. The king had entered Siena and Viterbo without striking a blow. Yves d'Allegre and Louis de Ligny had taken over Ostia from the hands of the Colonnas. Civiti Vecchia and Conetto had opened their gates. The Orsini had submitted. Even John Sforza, the Pope's son-in-law, had retired from the alliance with Aragon. 
alexander accordingly judged that the moment had come to abandon his ally and sent to charles the bishops of concordia and terni and his confessor monsignore graziano they were charged to renew briconnet and philippe de luxembourg the promise of the cardinalship and had full powers of negotiation in the name of their master both in case charles should wish to include alfonso the second in the treaty and in case he should refuse to sign an agreement with any other but the pope alone they found the mind of charles influenced now by the insinuation of giuliano della rovera who himself a witness of the pope's simony pressed the king to summon a council and depose the head of the church and now by the secret support given him by the bishops of mans and san malo the end of it was that the king decided to form his own opinion about the matter and settle nothing beforehand and continued his route sending the ambassadors back to the pope with the addition of the marshal de guy the seneschal de beaucaire and jean de ganet the first president of the paris parliament they were ordered to say to the pope one that the king wished above all things to be admitted into rome without resistance that on condition of a voluntary frank and loyal admission he would respect the authority of the holy father and the privileges of the church two that the king desired that de gem should be given up to him in order that he might make use of him against the sultan when he should carry the war into macedonia or turkey or the holy land three that the remaining conditions were so unimportant that they could be brought forward at the first conference the ambassadors added that the french army was now only two days distant from rome and that in the evening of the day after next charles would probably arrive in person to demand an answer from his holiness it was useless to think of parleying with a prince who acted in such expeditious fashion as this alexander accordingly warned ferdinand to quit rome as soon as possible in the interests of his own personal safety but ferdinand refused to listen to a word and declared that he would not go out at one gate while charles the eighth came in at another his sojourn was not long two days later about eleven o'clock in the morning a sentinel placed on a watch-tower at the top of the castel st angelo whither the pope had retired cried out that the vanguard of the enemy was visible on the horizon at once alexander and the duke of calabria went up on the terrace which tops the fortress and assured themselves with their own eyes that what the soldier said was true then and not till then did the duke of calabria mount on horseback and to use his own words went out at the gate of san sebastiana at the same moment that the french vanguard halted five hundred feet from the gate of the people this was on the thirty first of december fourteen ninety four at three in the afternoon the whole army had arrived and the vanguard began their march drums beating ensigns unfurled it was composed says paolo giove an eye-witness book two page forty one of his history of swiss and german soldiers with short tight coats of various colors they were armed with short swords with steel edges like those of the ancient romans and carried ashen lances ten feet long with straight and sharp iron spikes only one-fourth of their number bore halberts instead of lances 
the spikes cut into the form of an axe and surmounted on a four-cornered spike, to be used both for cutting like an axe and piercing like a bayonet. The first row of each battalion wore helmets and cuirasses which protected the head and chest, and when the men were drawn up for battle they presented to the enemy a triple array of iron spikes, which they could raise or lower like the spines of a porcupine. To each thousand of the soldiery were attached a hundred fusiliers. Their officers, to distinguish them from the men, wore lofty plumes on their helmets. After the Swiss came the archers of Gascony. There were five thousand of them, wearing a very simple dress that contrasted with the rich costume of the Swiss soldiers, the shortest of whom would have been a head higher than the tallest of the Gascons. But they were excellent soldiers, full of courage, very light, and with a special reputation for quickness in stringing and drawing their iron bows. Behind them rode the cavalry, the flower of the French nobility, with their gilded helmets and neckbands, their velvet and silk surcoats, their swords, each of which had its own name, their shields, each telling of territorial estates, and their colors, each telling of a lady-love. Besides defensive arms, each man bore a lance in his hand, like an Italian gendarme, with a solid grooved end, and on his saddle-bow a quantity of weapons, some for cutting and some for thrusting. Their horses were large and strong, but they had their tails and ears cropped according to the French custom. These horses, unlike those of the Italian gendarmes, wore no caparisons of dressed leather, which made them more exposed to attack. Every knight was followed by three horses, the first ridden by a page in armor like his own, the two others by equerries, who were called lateral auxiliaries, because in a fray they fought to right and left of their chief. This troop was not only the most magnificent, but the most considerable in the whole army, for as there were twenty-five hundred knights, they formed each with their three followers a total of ten thousand men. Five thousand light horse rode next, who carried huge wooden bows and shot long arrows from a distance like English archers. They were a great help in battle, for moving rapidly wherever aid was required, they could fly in a moment from one wing to another, from the rear to the van, then when their quivers were empty could go off at so swift a gallop that neither infantry nor heavy cavalry could pursue them. Their defensive armor consisted of a helmet and half cuirass. Some of them carried a short lance as well, with which to pin their stricken foe to the ground. They all wore long cloaks adorned with shoulder knots, and plates of silver whereon the arms of their chief were emblazoned. At last came the young king's escort. There were four hundred archers, among whom a hundred Scots formed a line on each side, while two hundred of the most illustrious knights marched on foot beside the prince, carrying heavy arms on their shoulders. In the midst of this magnificent escort advanced Charles the Eighth. both he and his horse covered with splendid armor. On his right and left marched Cardinal Ascanio Sforza, the Duke of Milan's brother, and Cardinal Giuliano della Rovera, of whom we have spoken so often, who was afterwards Pope Julius II. The Cardinals Colonna and Savelli followed immediately after, and behind them came Prospero and Fabrizio Colonna, 
and all the italian princes and generals who had thrown in their lot with the conquerors and were marching intermingled with the great french lords for a long time the crowd that had collected to see all these foreign soldiers go by a sight so new and strange listened uneasily to a dull sound which got nearer and nearer the earth visibly trembled the glass shook in the windows and behind the king's escort thirty-six bronze cannon were seen to advance bumping along as they lay on their gun carriages these cannons were eight feet in length and as their mouths were large enough to hold a man's head it was supposed that each of these terrible machines scarcely known as yet to the italians weighed nearly six thousand pounds after the cannons came culverins sixteen feet long and then falconets the smallest of which shot balls the size of a grenade this formidable artillery brought up the rear of the procession and formed the hindmost guard of the french army it was six hours since the front guard entered the town and as it was now night and for every six artillerymen there was a torch-bearer this illumination gave to the objects around a more gloomy character than they would have shown in the sunlight the young king was to take up his quarters in the palazzo di venezia and all the artillery was directed towards the plaza and the neighboring streets the remainder of the army was dispersed about the town the same evening they brought to the king less to do honor to him than to assure him of his safety the keys of rome and the keys of the belvedere garden just the same thing had been done for the duke of calabria the pope as we said had retired to the castel sant'angelo with only six cardinals so from the day after his arrival the young king had around him a court of very different brilliance from that of the head of the church then arose anew the question of a convocation to prove alexander's simony and proceed to depose him but the king's chief counsellors gained over as we know pointed out that this was a bad moment to excite a new schism in the church just when preparations were being made for war against the infidels as this was also the king's private opinion there was not much trouble in persuading him and he made up his mind to treat with his holiness but the negotiations had scarcely begun when they had to be broken off for the first thing charles the eighth demanded was the surrender of the castel st angelo and as the pope saw in this castle his only refuge it was the last thing he chose to give up twice in his youthful impatience charles wanted to take by force what he could not get by good will and had his cannons directed towards the holy father's dwelling-place but the pope was unmoved by these demonstrations and obstinate as he was this time it was the french king who gave way this article therefore was set aside and the following conditions were agreed upon that there should be from this day forward between his majesty the king of france and the holy father a sincere friendship and a firm alliance before the completion of the conquest of the kingdom of naples the king of france should occupy for the advantage and accommodation of his army the fortresses of civita vecchia terracina and spoleto lastly the cardinal valentino this was now the name of cesar borgia after his archbishopric of valencia should accompany the king in the capacity of apostolic ambassador really as a hostage 
these conditions fixed the ceremonial of an interview was arranged the king left the palazzo di venezia and went to live in the vatican at the appointed time he entered by the door of a garden that adjoined the palace while the pope who had not had to quit the castel sant'angelo thanks to a corridor communicating between the two palaces came down into the same garden by another gate the result of this arrangement was that the king the next moment perceived the pope and knelt down but the pope pretended not to see him and the king advancing a few paces knelt a second time as his holiness was at that moment screened by some masonry this supplied him with another excuse and the king went on with the performance got up again once more advanced several steps and was on the point of kneeling down the third time face to face when the holy father at last perceived him and walking towards him as though he would prevent him from kneeling took off his own hat and pressing him to his heart raised him up and tenderly kissed his forehead refusing to cover until the king had put his cap upon his head with the aid of the pope's own hands then after they had stood for a moment exchanging polite and friendly speeches the king lost no time in praying his holiness to be so good as to receive into the sacred college william briconet the bishop of st malo as this matter had been agreed upon beforehand by that prelate and his holiness though the king was not aware of it alexander was pleased to get credit by promptly granting the request and he instantly ordered one of his attendants to go to the house of his son cardinal valentino and fetch a cape and hat then taking the king by the hand he conducted him into the hall of papagalli where the ceremony was to take place of the admission of the new cardinal the solemn oath of obedience which was to be taken by charles to his holiness as supreme head of the christian church was postponed till the following day when that solemn day arrived every person important in rome noble cleric or soldier assembled around his holiness charles on his side made his approach to the vatican with a splendid following of princes prelates and captains at the threshold of the palace he found four cardinals who had arrived before him two of them placed themselves one on each side of him the two others behind him and all his retinue following they traversed a long line of apartments full of guards and servants and at last arrived in the reception room where the pope was seated on his throne with his son cesar borgia behind him on his arrival at the door the king of france began the usual ceremonial and when he had gone on from genuflections to kissing the feet the hand and the forehead he stood up while the first president of the parliament of paris in his turn stepping forward said in a loud voice very holy father behold my king ready to offer to your holiness that oath of obedience that he owes to you but in france it is customary that he who offers himself as vassal to his lord shall receive in exchange therefore such boons as he may demand his majesty therefore while he pledges himself for his own part to behave unto your holiness with a munificence even greater than that wherewith your holiness shall behave unto him is here to beg urgently that you accord him three favours these favours are first the confirmation of privileges already granted to the king to the queen his wife and to the dauphin his son 
secondly the investiture for himself and his successors of the kingdom of naples lastly the surrender to him of the person of the sultan de gem brother of the turkish emperor at this address the pope was for a moment stupefied for he did not expect these three demands which were moreover made so publicly by charles that no manner of refusal was possible but quickly recovering his presence of mind he replied to the king that he would willingly confirm the privileges that had been accorded to the house of france by his predecessors that he might therefore consider his first demand granted that the investiture of the kingdom was an affair that required deliberation in a council of cardinals but he would do all he possibly could to induce them to accede to the king's desire lastly he must defer the affair of the sultan's brother till a time more opportune for discussing it with the sacred college but would venture to say that as this surrender could not fail to be for the good of christendom as it was demanded for the purpose of assuring further the success of a crusade it would not be his fault if on this point also the king should not be satisfied at this reply charles bowed his head in sign of satisfaction and the first president stood up uncovered and resumed his discourse as follows very holy father it is an ancient custom among christian kings especially the most christian kings of france to signify through their ambassadors the respect they feel for the holy see and the sovereign pontiffs whom divine providence places thereon but the most christian king having felt a desire to visit the tombs of the holy apostles has been pleased to pay this religious debt which he regards as a sacred duty not by ambassadors or by delegates but in his own person this is why very holy father his majesty the king of france is here to acknowledge you as the true vicar of christ the legitimate successor of the apostles st peter and st paul and with promise and vow renders you that filial and respectful devotion which the kings his predecessors have been accustomed to promise and vow devoting himself and all his strength to the service of your holiness and the interests of the holy see End of section ten